BCY America presents Crosstalk, a nationwide call-in program discussing issues that have an effect on our families, our communities, our churches, our nation, and our world. Crosstalk, an opportunity for you to voice your concerns for biblical principles. And now live by satellite and around the world on the Internet at vcyamerica.org. Here is today's Crosstalk. We do thank you for joining us on Crosstalk here on VCY America. Ladies and gentlemen, in my opinion, what's been happening at our borders over the past few years has significantly compromised the safety and security of our nation. I mean, the numbers show record-breaking encounters of illegal aliens coming across the border, released with court dates many years down the road to hear their so-called asylum cases. We know those on the terrorism watch list have been attempting to cross our borders. Some are caught, but with increasing gotaway numbers, it's impossible to determine the depth of the threat. FBI Christopher, uh, Director Christopher Wray, I mean, he indicated the number of illegal immigrants evading Border Patrol agents and escaping into our nation is a source of, in his words, great concern for the FBI. The governor of the state of Texas made great efforts to secure his state, but is being thwarted and fought against by the Biden administration. The president has curtailed many of the Trump policies, which gave much broader protection to our country. This while he seeks to blame the previous administration and blame Congress as a source for failing to take action on what he calls meaningful border control legislation. Well, just yesterday, the Senate released their border bill, and the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, has said it is dead on arrival. Sorting these matters out for us, we welcome back to Crosstalk Andrew Arthur, resident fellow in the law uh, and policy for the Center for Immigration Studies. I'd like to give you more of his background because it's very important to you uh, listeners to understand uh, that he knows from whence he speaks. He began his legal career through the Attorney General's Honors Program, a clerk to the Administrative Law Judge in the Office of the Chief Administrative Hearing Officer at the United States Department of Justice, Executive Office for Immigration Review. Later in his career, was promoted to the Immigration and Naturalization Service General Counsel's Office in D.C., first as an Associate General Counsel, then as an Assistant General Counsel, and Acting Chief of the INS National Security Law Division. In the General Counsel's Office, he supervised attorneys handling cases involving espionage, terrorism, and and, uh, uh, persecutors. He advised the Attorney General, among others, on matters pertaining to national security. In 2001, he left INS to become a counsel on the House Judiciary Committee, where he performed oversight of immigration issues. After five years there, appointed to the immigration bench, serving for eight years as an immigration judge at the the York uh, Immigration Court in York, Pennsylvania. And at the beginning of the 114th Congress, Judge Arthur then left the bench, came back to Capitol Hill, served as staff director of the National Security Subcommittee at House Oversight and Government Reform, before being uh, taken into retirement from federal service in 2016, but is far from from retirement at this point. Andrew, thank you for joining us here on Crosstalk. Thank you so much, and uh, truly it's an honor uh, to be here with you today, and uh, a welcome break for my uh, otherwise busy schedule. (laughs) Great. We'll look at that border bill in just a short while that was just released yesterday, but I think it's important for our listeners to first understand the scope of the numbers that are entering our country illegally. What can you tell us? Yeah, no, last, uh, or in uh, December, I keep forgetting that it's uh, February already. In December, uh, Customs and Border Protection encountered uh, some 300,000 people entering the United States, nearly 250,000 of whom entered this country illegally. So when we talk about the numbers, these are the largest numbers uh, that we've ever seen in history. And as you noted before, that doesn't even uh, account for those gotaways. Aliens who entered the United States illegally and managed to evade Border Patrol agents. We don't know who they are or why they came, and given the fact that the Biden administration releases nearly every migrant uh, who enters the country illegally, it really does call into question their intentions in this country. So this is a, this is a national security crisis, a humanitarian crisis. Uh, it's just bad for communities and towns all across the republic. So what is happening with those that enter illegally? You said they're, they're, they're released. Uh, we understand many of these don't have asylum hearings for many years down the road. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. In fact, we know that Border Patrol released more than 191,000 uh, of those uh, migrants who, they, who agents apprehended at the southwest border last month. 
some other ones are, you know, handed over to ICE and they get released. A handful actually are removed from the United States or allowed to voluntarily depart the country. But the vast majority of them, uh, once they're here, they're here. Uh, you wrote recently in an article that there's been a massive spike in the number of no-shows in immigration court. Uh, tell us what's happening. Yeah, and, you know, that um, it's a problem in of itself. We've had more than uh, 159,000, I think it was, it, 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 it been pretty busy. Yeah, 159,379 uh, respondents, as we refer to aliens in immigration court, who failed to show up last year. That is a massive spike compared to any prior year. Uh, it's certainly a big jump over last year, and it's also a huge jump over FY 2019, which was the year in which we saw the, the most people fail to appear in court and be uh, removed in absentia. And it's a problem for, it's both a problem and a symptom. It's a symptom of, you know, how out of control the immigration system is under the Biden administration. Alien respondents in immigration court, if they didn't show up, uh, INS or ICE would go out and arrest them. Today, those people know that they can fail to appear in court with impunity and that no one's ever going to come and get them, that they could continue to live their lives uh, in this country, they're not even really in the shadows. They're more or less living openly, but they know that there are so many other aliens that uh, DHS has to deal with that they can simply remain and continue to live just as they were before. So, yeah, it's a huge problem. And, you know, when you consider the fact that the backlog at the immigration courts right now, and there are fewer than 700 immigration judges, is $3 million. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so the fact that 159,000 brand new record uh, of respondents aren't showing up for court isn't really, you know, that big a surprise, but it does simply underscore how the Biden administration is breaking our legal immigration system. So a backlog of three million and, and many years down the road, is some, are some waiting at a decade for a hearing? Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. In fact, in April of last year, uh, the New York Post reported that there were aliens who had been apprehended at the southwest border who had been released into the United States without being placed into removal proceedings, which, by the way, there's no authorization for that, but we'll move beyond that for a second, uh, who won't actually have court dates until, you know, 2034, 2035. Oh their first court date. We're not talking about their last one, their first one. Wow. And so um, those, uh, are, are they just infiltrated all throughout our states then at this particular juncture? Are they receiving, are they being able to work? Are they being, are they hireable? I mean, employers have to fill out these, you know, these I-9 forms. Um, is there any looking as to people who are being hired uh, uh, who are here illegally? Well, and that really goes back to 1986 when that I-9 form and the employment authorization process was first implemented. Back then, as you could read, anybody who was alive back then will tell you there were no computers. So that was a strictly paper-based system. And yet, for some reason, nearly 40 years later, it's still a paper-based yes. system. And, uh, you know, uh, counterfeit document vendors make millions, some possibly billions of dollars per year selling bogus driver's licenses and social security cards and birth certificates to people so that they can work in the United States. And, you know, Jim, that really sort of underscores how, you know, the illegality at the border pours into so many parts of our lives. Many of your listeners have probably had their social security numbers stolen by individuals so that they can work uh, illegally in the United States. And yet, uh, when there was a vote on the floor of the House uh, last week or two weeks ago, a majority of Democrats voted against making the you know theft of a uh, Social Security number a separate ground of removability, which, you know, all of this uh, starts at the top. There's a, a Pennsylvania Dutch saying that, you know, the, the fish rots from the head. And quite frankly, there's a lot of rot in Washington, D.C. right now that's enabling all of this to happen. How would you describe the morale of the Border Patrol officers at this time? Um, it's, it is, it's heartbreaking, to be honest with you. And, you know, I am a person who has worked with Border Patrol for three decades. 
you know, and, you know, I have great respect for the agents who go out day and night, it's 24 hour a day uh, job, uh, you know, in the middle of the desert, in the rain, in the cold, everything else. They deserve our thanks. And yet what they're getting from the Biden administration is the back of the hand. In fact, in the Senate bill that we'll get to soon, there, you know, a provision in there to train them to make them more sensitive people. I've never seen a situation in which uh, Border Patrol morale has been lower. Uh, fortunately, the men and women who do that job are, you know, diligent employees. And I think that they hope against hope that things will get better in the next year, uh, that, you know, either there will be a massive change of heart, you know, some sort of road to Damascus for the Biden administration, or alternatively, there'll be a change in administration. Mm-hmm. And they'll get a president who believes in the mission and understands how crucial the role that they play is for our national security and for the safety and health of the migrants themselves. Um, Andrew Arthur, our guest here today on Crosstalk from Center for Immigration Studies. Uh, the, the president's given the impression that he lacks the authority to do anything to curb this influx of illegals that are entering our country. Uh, he's been calling on Congress. Give me give me the resources. Give me the authority. He said, I've done all I can do to solve the border crisis. Give me the power. How is it that he is helpless at the border when when President Trump seemed to be very effective at the border? Yeah, and it's not just President Trump. And, you know, it, it's funny because I get asked this question a lot, and a lot of people, most people, Jim, don't, you know, draw that connection. Donald Trump was able to bring the border under control. And, in fact, you know, the day that Joe Biden took office, the border was probably the most secure it had ever been. But, you know, Barack Obama used the authorities that he had, the, the same ones that Joe Biden still has to bring the border under control. President Bush, uh, George W. Bush, did the same thing. The authority is there. The one thing that Congress can't legislate is the will, and the president just doesn't have the will to use those authorities the way that Presidents Bush, Obama, and Trump did. He'll never give you that impression, though. He, he you know, he, he. it's kind of like, you know, don't look at me, he point the fingers at Congress. Yeah, that's exactly what he's doing. He is blaming Congress and calling on Congress. He's deflecting the blame on everybody else, including mm-hmm. Republicans in Congress, of all people, for you know the, the tragedy that's happened at the, at the border. But if you're looking for the midwife of that tragedy, he sits in the Oval Office. Uh, everything that the president does, from releasing uh, aliens who enter the United States, who, by the way, uh, the law requires to be detained, he simply releases them, to not going after criminal aliens, murderers, rapists, domestic violence uh, uh, actors in this country, you know, simply create this culture of lawlessness that, uh, you know, migrants and smugglers exploit, primarily the smugglers. You know, the smugglers are able to point to everything that the Biden administration does and say, look, If you come to the United States, Joe Biden, not the United States, Joe Biden is going to let you in and let you work. Friends, we're going to take a quick break, but it sounds to me we need to look in uh, very desperately for that placard that Harry Truman had, the buck stops here. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, friends, we're going to take a look at this Senate border bill that was just released yesterday, this compromise bill, all the negotiations that took place. Folks, it's worse than you think. We'll be back in one minute here on Crosstalk. Back to Genesis with Dr. John Morris, popular creation speaker and author with the Institute for Creation Research. Dr. Morris, this might seem simple, but where did music come from? Chris, music is an integral part of being in the image of God. The early chapters of Genesis reveal that just within a few generations of creation, men were constructing musical instruments, both wind instruments and string instruments. Soon we see that even this was perverted. Lamech, one of the patriarchs, even sang a song boasting of his adventures and murderous prowess. Musical instruments have been found from soon after the flood. Even Neanderthal fossils are found in conjunction with musical instruments. You see, Chris, the evidence that we find supports the biblical truth of creation. Even music started back in Genesis. For more information on the foundational principles set forth in Genesis, simply visit us on the web at www.icr.org. That's www.icr.org.
You're listening to Crosstalk on VCY America. We're talking about this, uh, the well, the border's unraveling right now, folks, with uh, this administration in charge of it, friends. As I mentioned, Harry Truman had that placard, the buck stops here. And yet there's uh, the blame shifting that's been happening for the last few years. Um, Previous presidents didn't have that issue. Uh, We're speaking today with Andrew Arthur, who is resident fellow in law and policy for the Center for Immigration Studies. Their website is CIS.org, stands for Center for Immigration Studies, CIS.org. So, Andrew, yesterday we have the the Senate releasing their border bill. Mitch McConnell, he's in favor of this thing, advancing the legislation. House leadership has denounced it. What can you tell us about this so-called negotiated legislation? Yeah, this uh, negotiation turns the, uh, the entire discussion on its head. This is a situation in which the law, as I said before, currently requires uh, aliens to be detained, uh, you know, when they enter the United States illegally until they're either removed from this country or granted asylum. This bill gives Secretary Mayorkas, the same fellow who's being, uh, you know, subject to an impeachment inquiry in the House of Representatives, the opportunity to put them on a separate track in which release is actually mandatory, if you can believe such a thing. And it also removes the asylum claims of those aliens from immigration judges in a confrontational adversarial proceeding in immigration court. Uh, and gives them to asylum officers who will make those determinations in non-adversarial proceedings in which the alien is entitled to have an interview, but the American people are uh, entitled to have a uh, an attorney, but the American people aren't entitled to have an attorney. So, you know, this is an effort to try to move cases through the system as quickly as possible, and that's certainly a laudable goal. The problem is, that it does it at uh, a significant risk to national security and to the likelihood that aliens with bogus claims or fraudulent claims would be able to come to the United States, receive asylum status, and be placed on a path to citizenship. Okay, let's let's define asylum because you know we're hearing this over and over again. Are, are not these individuals passing through multiple countries to get to us here to the United States? What is meant by asylum? So asylum is a form of protection that the United States extends to people who are uh, who fit the statutory definition of refugee. Only refugees are generally outside of the country. Asylees are inside the United States. And that's sort of a roundabout way of saying asylum is a form of uh, status in the United States that is available to an alien who can show a well-founded fear of persecution, but it's not persecution based on anything. It's not, I can't find a job, or I'm poor, or, you know, there's a lot of corruption in my country. It's only persecution on account of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. Those are the only five bases for asylum relief, even though most of the people who, you know, show up at the border come and say, I'm, I'm coming to work, or, you know, I'm poor, or I want to provide for my family, or I want the American dream. Oh, wow. So they're not meeting the definition of asylum, and yet, what, what do we have immigration judges that are just blinking their eye at what the definition of that is? Uh, actually, the immigration judges do a very good job, and as you mentioned, I, you know, was an immigration judge myself right. uh, for a number of years. Uh, and, you know, if they make a mistake, uh, current, under the current immigration court system, an ICE attorney can, uh, take an appeal from that decision to the Board of Immigration Appeals, as can the alien in that proceeding. Uh, under the, uh, the system that is proposed in this bill, that mandatory release system, uh, asylum officers at USCIS who don't have to be lawyers. Uh, I had to be a lawyer and had practiced for seven years before I could be a judge. Uh, you know, we'll make those determinations. And the review to which there's any review at all uh, of a grant is, you know, performed solely by another asylum officer, a supervisory asylum officer. So, you know, when you talk about, you know, if we Americans watch plenty of, you know, courtroom TV, you know, they see, you know, that, that cross-examination, 
you know, process where, you know, people offer evidence and there's impeachment of the evidence and rebuttals and things like that. That doesn't exist at all under this scheme that the bill provides for asylum officers. Basically, the asylum officer will hear one side of the story and will either conclude that the applicant is telling the truth or isn't telling the truth. But at no point in that process is there any real confrontation of that person Hmm. by an outside party to challenge the statements that they're making. Wow. Andrew, uh, as Congressman Scalise, uh, he said that this this package that was unleashed by by the uh, Senate yesterday uh, said that this accepts 5,000 illegal immigrants a day and gives automatic work permits to asylum recipients. He calls it a magnet for more illegal immigration. Do you agree? Yeah, it, mm-hmm. that's absolutely true. Uh, of course, Steve Scalise isn't just any member of Congress. He's the majority leader of the House of Representatives. Uh, and, you know, when he says something, you can be, you know, pretty sure that it's true. In this particular instance, the scheme that this bill sets up would allow uh, asylum officers to automatically grant work authorization to anybody who passes their initial screening and requires anybody who they can't screen within a 90-day deadline, which they're never going to meet, uh, be granted uh, work authorization as well. The current standard is and this is a standard that was created by Congress in 1996, is uh, that an asylum applicant has to wait 180 days after they file their application before they're eligible for employment authorization. Going back to earlier in the conversation, remember when we were talking about how people you know, may have to wait a decade or more for their hearings? They can't file that asylum application until they actually get in front of an immigration judge which means that it will be 180 days after oh 10 years from now. You know, when you, when you uh, compare that to this 90-day rule for work authorization, it's good for cities like, uh, you know, New York, you know, that, that are confronted with 150, 160,000 people who can't work. The problem is that it's bad for all of the American workers. When I say American workers, I'm not just talking about citizens. I'm talking about legal immigrants as well, that they're going to be in direct competition for. In fact, when the Biden administration first proposed this uh, particularly bad idea back in March of 2022, they admitted that it was going to make it a whole lot cheaper for uh, employers to hire workers. The part, of course, that they admitted was that it's also going to be depriving American workers of work opportunities. So, again, this is one of those situations in which the rich will get richer. If you've got money, if you've got a good job, or, you know, you're independently wealthy, uh, then, you know, things will be cheaper. It's going to be cheaper to buy things. It's going to be cheaper to buy services. The immigration laws that were supposed to uh, you know, take into account, in fact, most significantly take into account struggling American workers, disadvantaged people, members of minority groups that have been traditionally discriminated against in the past, inner city youth, and legal immigrants who haven't had the opportunity to adjust to life right now. They're going to be placed in direct competition with all of those new workers who are going to come into the United States with freshly minted employment authorization documents. So, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, Leader Scalise is absolutely correct. That's exactly what this bill does. It doesn't hide it. It's very clear within the terms of language. So so are we laying out the red carpet or paving the way for what would look like blanket amnesty coming up out of this legislation? Yeah, and, you know, it's not even blanket amnesty because, of course, amnesty is, you know, you don't have status and, uh, you know, we're going to give you status notwithstanding what you did. This is going to make it much more likely that uh, aliens without valid asylum claims, again, people who are here illegally and have no right to be in the country, are going to be erroneously granted asylum and put on a fast uh, track to citizenship. It's about six years once you get granted asylum uh, to get citizenship. And all of that will enable them to immigrate their immediate family to the United States, and not just their immediate family, but their brothers and sisters, and their brothers and sisters' kids as well. Right. So, yeah, if you know, if you want to talk about uh, the situation in the United States, 
And keep in mind, at the present time, about 15% of the American population is foreign-born. That's the highest it's ever been in history. If we think about the 1890s and the steamships going to Ellis Island and all of the you know, the, uh, you know, the famine Irish and the, you know, displaced Italians and Greeks, other people, uh, who came to this country, we have a higher level of foreign born, higher percentage of foreign born people living in the United States today than we've ever had in our history. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. Well, what about wall building? Is, is there any monies designating this for, for completing the wall? So, <laughs> and that's a, that's a, uh, a a tough issue. There's $650 million for uh, wall-building funds, but there are about $2 billion worth of unexpended funds that the Biden administration has been sitting on since day one. On his first day in office, the president issued an executive order that put a pause, as he referred to it, uh, onto wall construction. And the reason that he had to call it a pause is because that money's already been appropriated by Congress. And the president, under the Impoundment Control Act, which was something that was passed in the wake of Watergate, has to spend money that uh, Congress has apportioned for a specific purpose. This bill, get ready for this part because you're not going to believe me, this bill puts off the period of time that Joe Biden has to spend that money from the end of this year until the end of 2028. (laughs) So... I, it, it again, you know, it's it's one of those things that's almost so wonky and so much inside baseball. Yeah, it's almost difficult to comprehend, and yet, you know, Congress is basically allowing Joe Biden to avoid having to build the wall for as long as possible. And I've been to the border a number of times. In fact, the last time I was there uh, was actually was in August when I appeared at a congressional hearing in uh, Cochise County, Arizona. And I, when I was there, I took members down to the border and I showed them the wall panels that are, you know, stacked up. So, you know, everything's there for the construction to begin, except again for the will. The money's there, yeah. the panels are there, the wire is there, but the president doesn't want to do it, and this bill would give him a pass. Okay, we're just a minute from the break, and the other side, we're going to cover the Homeland Security Secretary impeachment issues. We're going to cover the state of Texas. Anything else about this border bill released from the Senate that's important for our listeners to know? Yeah, no, I mean, it is, uh, you know, under the guise of attempting to control the border, it simply allows more people, in fact, encourages more people to enter the United States illegally. My, my. So, folks, what it does, it puts out the welcome mat, and uh, in, in my opinion, shame on Mitch McConnell for for saying, "Yeah, we need to advance this. Let's get the you know, let's get this thing rolling here." But, uh, folks, uh, you need to be in connection with your U.S. House members on this legislation. They have said it's uh, in essence dead on arrival coming to the House of Representatives. But what happens next? We're going to take a quick break. We're speaking today with Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies. Their website C. CIS.org, CIS.org. We have an impeachment proceeding going on right now for the Secretary of Homeland Security. Uh, The governor of the state of Texas has been standing up and and seeking to protect his state, to protect the citizens of his state. And yet that's another battle that the president, he uh, is not sitting idle on this one, taking active action against the state of Texas as they seek to protect their citizens. Friends, we've got more to unfold after the break. You're listening to Crosstalk on VCY America. There is no heartache equal to that of losing a loved one to suicide. Unanswered questions, despair, and perhaps self-blame can leave those behind with feelings of hopelessness. But true hope and help can be found in Christ alone. In the booklet Hope Beyond Despair... Author Julie Gossick shares from personal experience how the truth of Scripture and the hope of the gospel can bring comfort to those who are living in the aftermath of suicide. She addresses what the Bible has to say on this issue and provides a lasting hope based on biblical principles. The book Hope Beyond Despair is available from VCY for a donation of $6 or three copies for a donation of $15. Just ask for Hope Beyond Despair when you call with your gift at 1-800-729-9829. You may also write VCY America, 3434 West Kilbourne Avenue, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 53208. 
Friends, just a reminder to let your views be made known to your congressman. You can do that through the Capitol Hill switchboard. The House switchboard number is 202-225-3121. And you can speak on this issue. Let them know where you stand on it. 202-225-3121. We're speaking today with Andrew Arthur, Resident Fellow in Law and Policy for the Center for Immigration Studies, and uh, talking about what's taking place at the border. We're talking about the the uh, bill that was just uh, released yesterday. There's been a lot of speculation what's in it, what is not in it. And uh, the, the articles I've read on it uh, shows it's, it's worse than we anticipated. Well, while this is unfolding, just a week ago, the House Homeland Security Committee released two articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary um, uh, Mayorkas. Representative Mark Green said, quote, his lawless behavior was exactly what the framers gave us this impeachment power to remedy. Uh, Andrew, uh, tell us about the charges that are laid against the Homeland Security Secretary and where is this process at this time? So there are a number of different mandates in the Immigration and Nationality Act, essentially requirements on the secretary for, you know, what he's supposed to do and how he's supposed to do. We touched on one of them before, and that is uh, he's required to detain migrants who enter the United States illegally. Now, if I were to ask you or I would ask any of your listeners or even an expert, you know, how many detention beds uh DHS needs, you wouldn't be able to give me an answer. The secretary is also under a statutory mandate to tell Congress every six months how many detention beds he needs. Uh, Secretary Mayorkas has also failed to comply with uh, that uh, reporting requirement. In fact, when the committee specifically asked him, he didn't give them an answer. Instead, what the Biden administration has been doing is, in each of its budget requests, asking for Fewer and fewer beds. There are about 34,000 detention beds right now. The president has asked Congress to cut that and claims that, uh, you know, that's going to be sufficient uh, detention space to, you know, comply with the statutory mandates. So both the failure to detain and the failure to report are in there. The law also mandates that the uh, secretary gain what's called operational control of the border. That was included in the Secure Fence Act of 2006, which is a piece of bipartisan legislation that was uh, agreed to by Secretary Joe Biden, or uh, Senator Joe Biden, but also Senator Barack Obama and Senator Hillary Clinton. So, I mean, this is uh, a statutory requirement, and it says that uh, operational control in this uh, context is preventing any alien from entering the United States illegally. Well, as we discussed at the uh, outset of this conversation, about 250,000 aliens in December came to the United States illegally, so the Secretary is plainly failing to satisfy that mandate as well, and that's uh, also among the charges. In addition, the secretary is refusing to um, apprehend and detain criminal aliens who are present in the United States. Again, those are the murderers and the rapists, uh, you know, the uh, spousal abusers and, you know, all the other folks who were here illegally. Back in September of 2021, the secretary put out guidance it restricts the ability of ICE officers to go out and pick those criminals up. Before those ICE officers can do anything, they have to first consider what are referred to as uh, aggravating and mitigating factors. The mitigating factors, of course, or the aggravating factors, of course, are the crimes themselves and the duration uh, and seriousness of those crimes. But among the mitigating factors are the, uh, the alien's age, the alien's health, the likelihood that the alien would be eligible for relief. And this is another one you're not going to believe, whether or not the alien has any relatives who work for the government. So, you know, if you are, uh, you know, a person who has engaged in aggravated assault, but your kid works for the Postal Service, then, you know, ICE has to take that into consideration, not before arresting you, before they question you. You know, these restrictions are bizarre, and again, that's yet another um, charge that has been laid upon the secretary. So the, the 
you know, we all know what Alejandro Mayorkas has been doing, and so does Congress, and, you know, has set those charges before him. Uh, as bases for impeachment. You know, it, it's just amazing. We, we don't have to go too far back in history to see the formation of the Department of Homeland Security. It happened after 9-11. It was just a, a year and a couple months after 9-11. Uh, it was November 2002 when the Department of Homeland Security was created, and it's because of, really because of 19 rogue individuals that got into this nation that, 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 that you know, brought terror to this nation, thousands of Americans killed as a result, and, and so we're, we're going to beef up our security for our, our homeland. Look how far we've drifted off course. Yeah, I know, and it's actually worse than that, because if you, and again, you know, you, you listed my, my curricula vitae at the beginning, and I'm grateful for that. You know, amongst the jobs that I held was, uh, you know, staffer for the House Judiciary Committee, in which I helped to draft the bill that became the Department of Homeland Security. And indeed, the 19 hijackers were part of the reason, were a big part of the reason why it was created uh, to begin with. But the specific reason why DHS came into being, and you may remember this, uh, is that six months to the day after the September 11th attacks, the then Immigration and Naturalization Service extended the student visas for Mohammed Atta and Marwan mm. al-Shaibi. Mm. Those are the two pilots of the planes that flew into the World Trade Center. And at that point, you know, Congress was convinced that, you know, that that particular agency could no longer protect the American people. You fast forward a number of years, Congress has, you know, improved the system by which we give visas two foreign nationals coming to the United States, and each of the 19 hijackers came here on a visa. Uh, you know, so we've, in essence, closed the front door of the United States to terrorists, but the Biden administration hasn't even opened the back door. They've taken a bulldozer and run it through the back door right. to widen the chasm that they can enter. It's also important to understand why impeachment is the vehicle that Congress has chosen. Impeachment is what Congress is doing because the Supreme Court has held, and we're probably going to get to this, that the states don't have the ability to either Mm -hmm. enforce the laws themselves or to force DHS, Secretary Mayorkas, to enforce the laws. So, you know, Texas has sued a couple of times, one in Texas versus Biden, to force Secretary Mayorkas to reinstate the Trump-era Remain in Mexico policy. And again, in Texas versus United States, to force the Biden administration to actually pick up all the criminal aliens who were being held in Texas jails uh, and in other jails in other states that, by law, they're supposed to pick up. And the Supreme Court ruled, no, the states don't have standing to, you know, uh, bring a suit, and we don't have the ability to force the Biden administration to do that otherwise. But... And this is an important but. In the oral argument for that case, Elizabeth Prelogar, who's the Solicitor General of the United States, the top courtroom attorney for DHS or for DOJ, and of course, you know, President Biden's top courtroom uh, lawyer, was asked by Secretary or by uh, Justice Kavanaugh, you know, well, what do they have to do? You know, do they have to impeach them in order to get the law enforced if everything you tell us is true? Now, uh, Solicitor General Prelogard didn't rise to that bait. She was like, well, it would have to be really serious to go down those routes. But in his dissent from uh, the Supreme Court's decision in Texas versus United States, Justice Alito said, yes, you know, basically the only options that the court has left Congress and the American people to get the law enforced is to either shut down the government or alternatively impeach the secretary. And so, uh, you know, left with no other options, Chairman Green and the House Homeland Security Committee uh, have turned to the impeachment in order to force Secretary Mayorkas or his successor to enforce the laws. Wow, wow. 
Friends, uh, you're listening to Crosswalk on VCY America. We're speaking with Andrew Arthur from Center for Immigration Studies. He's resident fellow in law and policy. Um, we're just a couple minutes before the break. Uh, friends, if you'd like to start getting online here with your questions or brief comments, our number 800-733-9829. We'll take your calls in the final segment, 800-733-9829. Uh, we know that the governor of Texas, uh, Governor Abbott, has, has taken greater action against this threat than than any. Even, I'd say, the president himself as far as protecting the border. And yet, even his efforts are being attacked by the Biden administration. Um, and and it seems that the U.S. Supreme Court, is, as you were alluding to here just a bit ago, has upheld the federal government's authority over the state of Texas protecting themselves. Uh, we have Texas who said, you know, we're not backing down. Other neighboring states and, and, and distant states, uh, Governor Noam out of South D- Dakota, I, I'll put the razor wire in the back of my truck and drive it down there. Uh, so comment about this showdown with Texas that's going on and what right does Texas have in protecting herself as a state. Yeah, and you know, this story actually begins back in March of 2021. In March 2021, Governor Abbott, you know, went to the border and he saw that Border Patrol agents were overwhelmed. They couldn't do their job. They couldn't stop drugs and, you know, criminal aliens from entering the United States illegally. So he deployed National Guard troops and state troopers from the Texas Department of Public Safety to the border to help them out. National Guard keeps watch on the uh, line looks for incursions and sends the troopers out or alternatively will tell what Border Patrol agents there are that people are crossing. Everybody down there, uh, you know, including CBP, is grateful for the assistance uh, that those troopers and that those National Guard troops uh, provide. Fast forward to the weeks before the end of uh, Title 42 in early May of uh, 2023, and Texas expanded its operations. In addition to sending the troopers down there, it began erecting uh, concertina wire or sea wire fences along the banks of the Rio Grande, you know, directly across from cities and towns, major cities and towns. The idea was that if, you know, migrants enter the United States illegally or smugglers come here illegally and there's nothing to stop them, that they're going to be able to just, you know, run right into those towns, blend into the community. We're never going to find them. So by erecting those barriers, Texas was preventing people from crossing. The border between Texas and Mexico is 1,254 miles long. It's about 70% of the uh, total southwest border. And by and large, along that, you know, 1,254-mile border, CBP is grateful for everything that Texas is doing. You know, they, they, they won't state it because it makes the Biden administration look bad, but you talk to the agents, they're glad that uh, they have the help. Except for in a 29-mile segment of the Rio Grande in Maverick County, Texas. And for some reason, and nobody really knows the reason why, CBP in that particular 29-mile segment started cutting the wire. And they didn't just cut the wire, Jim. They, you know, brought in trucks that, you know, hauled the wire out of the ground mm. for no purpose other than allowing people to enter the United States illegally. Biden administration went to court, went to district court, and the district court judge actually was very sympathetic and accused, uh, you know, the Biden administration of duplicitous conduct in asserting that it had to remove that wire so that it could apprehend and process people. The judge is like, look. You know, these people are turning themselves in, so you don't have to apprehend them. And, you know, you're you're not actually processing them either. So, you know, if we pick it up from there, I'll tell you the rest of the story. Okay, back in one minute. And friends, we'll uh, pick up some of your phone calls here as well at Crosstalk, 800-733-9829. Andrew Arthur, our guest, resident fellow in law and policy for the Center for Immigration Studies. We'll be right back. For the Worldview Report, I'm Brandon House. Our website is worldviewreport.com. In my second book that came out in 1995, I had an entire chapter on something known as the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. By UN, obviously, that's the United Nations. In that book, I was warning about a global treaty that many nations were signing on to that would destroy the God-given parental authority we have so enjoyed here in America. Many nations have signed on to it. America is one of the last nations not to do so. 
Well, over the years, I've been warning that it looks like the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child is being implemented piecemeal by many state legislatures as they undermine parental authority. The latest, Montana CPS takes 14-year-old girl to Wyoming for gender transition, so-called, against her parents' wishes. Sadly, we are seeing the globalists accomplish their goal of attacking God-given parental authority. Again, friends, to reach out to your member of Congress uh, to share your views on this issue, 202-225-3121. Senate switchboard is 202-224-3121. With us today is Andrew Arthur, resident fellow in law and policy for the Senator for uh, Immigration Studies. Folks, they've got so many wonderful articles and writings on their site, uh, keeping you informed on critical issues. You can sign up for updates on their site, cis.org, cis.org. Uh, Andrew, just before picking up calls here, you had uh, you were telling us about Texas and, and, and uh, the decision unfolding there pertaining to the state. Right. So the district court judge found it was very sympathetic. She found that the law would work if it was just enforced. It's not being enforced. Uh, but there was nothing she could do. That went to the Fifth Circuit, and the Fifth Circuit actually issued an order stopping uh, the Biden administration from destroying that wire. Then uh, Ms. Prelagar, the Solicitor General, the top courtroom lawyer, went to the Supreme Court so that uh, she could get permission from them to destroy the wire, and that's where we are. And uh, January 22nd, Supreme Court issued a real quick, real brief order that said that uh, they could destroy it. And now we have this standoff between Texas you know, that keeps putting more wire in in the yeah. Biden administration, which probably doesn't have the temerity at this point to actually destroy any more wire, but that's the state of play. Okay. Let's get to the phone lines. We've got uh, David calling in uh, from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. David, you're on the air. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I would like to know, why isn't President Biden being impeached for not keeping America's border secure? Hmm. Yeah, okay. So not just DHS Secretary why have not such impeachment charges been brought against him? Well, that's an excellent uh, question. And, you know, at the present time, the House Judiciary Committee is taking a look at, uh, you know, interactions between the president's son and other individuals and potential abuses of the law by the president. And it's possible, if not likely, that what's going on at the border, uh, if the Judiciary Committee ever comes up with its own articles, that that's going to be included in those articles as well. It's a great question. Do, thank you, David. Do we know when the House, I mean, the, the committee voted here last week to advance the articles of impeachment. Do we know when the House is actually going to pick up this issue? Uh, the articles of impeachment on Secretary Mayorkas, the vote on that uh, is imminent, but I can't, but they haven't scheduled it yet. Uh, and I really, you know, before they bring it to the floor, they're going to first make sure that they have enough votes for it. And there are some Republicans who, you know, are uneasy about this because they saw the way that President Trump, uh, you know, had those impeachment powers of the Democratic Congress used against them. And, you know, a lot of them just want to lower the temperature, but that does nothing to secure the border. Randy in Fayetteville, Arkansas, you're on the air. Yeah, I just have a couple of questions, comments, I guess. Uh, the whole impeachment business, I think, is just a, a ploy, because you all know it's you know, it's going to take, what, probably at least a year, and there'll be a new election by then. Uh, and I think as far as the Supreme Court backing up the Biden administration over Texas, I think it just shows how another example of how deep the corruption is in our government. And, and, I, and I'm speaking of Texas and South Dakota. I say, amen, go mm. for it. Yeah. Thank you, Randy. Uh, it's scriptural, it's scriptural that we defy the laws of the government if they're not biblical. Randy, thank you for your call here. Uh, as as a any, any comment to anything that he had to say there? Sure, and you know it's important to note that it's not just you know Governor Nome and Governor Abbott. Right. Uh, you know Governor DeSantis uh, has long played, uh, has long given assistance to the state of Texas in this effort, and that continues. Many Republican governors yeah. from around the country are you know, doing similar things or supporting uh, the state of Texas and the litigation that continues to uh, play out in the courts over what's going on at the border. Hey, Governor Stitt, uh, just to his north as well in Oklahoma, one of the first ones to come alongside and support him as well. 
Uh, let's go to Mark in Newark, Ohio. Mark, you're on the air. Yeah, on that bill, if they the state decide not to uh, just ignore it and take it on themselves to still do it, and if the federal government decides, hey, we're going to over-succeed that, can Texas decide to uh, leave the United States and, be, and create their own country for a little while till we find out what happens to the elections? And if he comes back to be the president, can they stay there and it would be legal? Hmm. Well, we, we, we had a bit of unpleasantness in the 1860s, and that's an understatement, over the ability of states to leave the union. And, uh, you know, Texas is actually seriously talking about, uh, you know, anything, you know, like secession. But what they are talking about is the right of Texas to uh, defend Texans. And not just Texas. You know, we talk about this in terms of Texas. What they're doing is they stop, you know, those migrants from coming illegally and the fentanyl and the heroin and the methamphetamine. Mm-hmm. They're actually, you know, protecting citizens, you know, across the country, you know, South Dakota, you know, Indiana, uh, my home state of North Carolina. So, yeah, I mean, they all uh, deserve a, a debt of gratitude. But uh, Governor Abbott is a smart man. He knows how to use the law, and he also knows how to use his bully pulpit in order to draw attention, as we see in New York, Philadelphia, and many other cities. Thank you for the call here. Uh, we not don't have time for additional phone calls, but what we are seeing, Andrew, is a number of these sanctuary cities now really being pushed to the brink. Many are bursting at the seams and calling out the president, we want more money. And you've got pushback happening from the people, the residents of these cities that's on the increase. And and some of these self-declared sanctuary cities, uh, there's a lot of internal pressure going on within these communities as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that that's where you're really going to see the changes. The Biden administration is more or less drowned out, you know, Republicans and Republican office holders. But, you know, is the uh, pressure increased on the White House from Eric Adams, the Democratic uh, mayor of New York City, mm-hmm. uh, from the you know governors, the uh, Democratic governors of these northern states. That's where the real changes are going to come, uh, because the president does respond to that. And also, very important point, uh, in polling, especially recent polling over the last month, this is the most significant electoral vulnerability that the president has. What's going on at the southwest border? The American people are fed up. This election could very easily be delivered to Donald Trump because of what Joe Biden is doing at the southwest border. Wow, wow. And friends, we're going to have to leave it there right now because we're out of time. But you can stay informed on the critical issues uh, on the border, CIS.org. We didn't get to the northern border, but there's concerns there as well. The Center for Immigration Studies is writing on that topic as well. And, uh, Andrew, thank you so much for carving out the hour and joining to uh, inform our listeners on this critical issue. I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunity. I thank you and your listeners again. And friends, thanks for tuning in here today to Crosstalk. Have a blessed afternoon. You've been listening to Crosstalk via satellite and the Internet from BCY America. Views expressed may or may not be those of this station. For a CD of today's program, send a donation of $6 or more to VCY Take Ministry, 3434 West Kilbourne Avenue, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 53208. Or download by RSS or podcast from CrosstalkAmerica.com. And join us again for Crosstalk. Crosstalk.